Chapter Nine, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Nine. In the midst was seen a lady of more majestic mien, By stature and by beauty marked their sovereign queen. And as in beauty she surpassed the choir, So nobler than the rest was her attire. A crown of ruddy gold enclosed her brow, Plain without pomp and rich without a show. A branch of Agnes cast us in her hand, she bore aloft her symbol of command, the flower and the leaf. William de Weevil and Stephen de Martival, the marshals of the field, were the first to offer their congratulations to the victor, praying him at the same time to suffer his helmet to be unlaced, or at least that he would raise his visor ere they conducted him to receive the prize of the day's tourney from the hands of Prince John. The disinherited knight, with all knightly courtesy, declined their request, alleging that he could not at this time suffer his face to be seen, for reasons which he had assigned to the heralds when he entered the lists. The marshals were perfectly satisfied by this reply, for amidst the frequent and capricious vows by which knights were accustomed to bind themselves in the days of chivalry, there were none more common than those by which they engaged to remain incognito for a certain space, or until some particular adventure was achieved. The marshals, therefore, pressed no farther into the mystery of the disinherited knight, but, announcing to Prince John the conqueror's desire to remain unknown, they requested permission to bring him before his grace, in order that he might receive the reward of his valour. John's curiosity was excited by the mystery observed by the stranger, and being already displeased with the issue of the tournament, in which the challengers whom he favoured had been successively defeated by one knight, he answered haughtily to the marshals, "'By the light of Our Lady's brow, this same knight hath been disinherited as well of his courtesy as of his lands, since he desires to appear before us without uncovering his face. What ye, my lords,' he said, turning round to his train. "'Who this gallant can be that bears himself thus proudly?' "'I cannot guess,' answered de Bracy. "'Nor did I think that there had been within the four seas that girth Britain a champion that could bear down these five knights in one day's jousting. By my faith, I shall never forget the fourth with which he shocked Vipon. The poor hospitaller was hurled from his saddle like a stone from a sling. "'Boast not of that.' said a knight of St. John, who was present. Your temple champion had no better luck. I saw your brave lance, Bois-Gilbert, roll thrice over, grasping his hands full of sand at every turn. De Bracy, being attached to the Templars, would have replied, but was prevented by Prince John. "'Silence, sirs,' he said. "'What unprofitable debate have we here?' "'The victor,' said de Weevil, still waits the pleasure of your highness. It is our pleasure, answered John, that he do so wait until we learn whether there is not some one who can at least guess at his name and quality. 
Should he remain there till nightfall, he has had his work enough to keep him warm. Your grace, said Valdemar Fitzurs, will do less than due honour to the victor if you compel him to wait till we tell your highness that which we cannot know. At least I can form no guess, unless he be one of the good lances who accompanied King Richard to Palestine, and who are now straggling homeward from the Holy Land. It may be the Earl of Salisbury, said de Bracy. He is about the same pitch. Sir Thomas de Moulton, the Knight of Gisland, rather, said Fitzurse. Salisbury is bigger in the bones. A whisper arose among the train, but by whom first suggested could not be ascertained. It might be the king, it might be Richard Coeur de Lyon himself. Over gods forebode, said Prince John, involuntarily turning at the same time as pale as death, and shrinking as if blighted by a flash of lightning. Valdemar, de Bracy, brave knights and gentlemen, remember your promises and stand truly by me. Here is no danger impending, said Valdemar Fitzurse. Are you so little acquainted with the gigantic limbs of your father's son as to think they can be held within the circumference of yonder suit of armor? De Weevil and Martival, you will best serve the prince by bringing forward the victor to the throne, and ending an error that has conjured all the blood from his cheeks. Look at him more closely, he continued. Your highness will see that he wants three inches of King Richard's height, and twice as much of his shoulder-breadth. The very horse he backs could not have carried the ponderous weight of King Richard through a single course. While he was yet speaking, the marshals brought forward the disinherited knight to the foot of a wooden flight of steps, which formed the ascent from the list to Prince John's throne. Still discomposed with the idea that his brother, so much injured, and to whom he was so much indebted, had suddenly arrived in his native kingdom, even the distinctions pointed out by Fitzurse did not altogether remove the prince's apprehensions. And while, with a short and embarrassed eulogy upon his valour, he caused to be delivered to him the war-horse assigned as the prize, he trembled lest from the barred visor of the mailed form before him an answer might be returned in the deep and awful accents of Richard the lion-hearted. But the disinherited knight spoke not a word in reply to the compliment of the prince, which he only acknowledged with a profound obeisance. The horse was led into the lists by two grooms richly dressed, the animal itself being fully accoutred with the richest war furniture, which, however, scarcely added to the value of the noble creature in the eyes of those who were judges. Laying one hand upon the pummel of the saddle, the disinherited knight vaulted at once upon the back of the steed without making use of the stirrup and, brandishing aloft his lance, rode twice around the lists, exhibiting the points and paces of the horse, with the skill of a perfect horseman. The appearance of vanity which might otherwise have been attributed to this display was removed by the propriety shown in exhibiting to the best advantage the princely reward with which he had been just honoured, and the knight was again greeted by the acclamations of all present. In the meanwhile, the bustling prior of Jarvaux had reminded Prince John, in a whisper, that the victor must now display his good judgment, instead of his valour, by selecting from among the beauties who graced the galleries a lady who should fill the throne of the Queen of Beauty and of Love, and deliver the prize of the tourney upon the ensuing day. 
the prince accordingly made a sign with his truncheon as the knight passed him in his second career around the lists. The knight turned towards the throne, and, sinking his lance until the point was within a foot of the ground, remained motionless, as if expecting John's commands, while all admired the sudden dexterity with which he instantly reduced his fiery steed from a state of violent emotion and high excitation to the stillness of an equestrian statue. "'Sir disinherited knight,' said Prince John, "'since that is the only title by which we can address you, it is now your duty, as well as privilege, to name the fair lady, who, as queen of honour and of love, is to preside over next day's festival. If, as a stranger in our land, you should require the aid of other judgment to guide your own, we can only say that Alicia, the daughter of our gallant knight Valdemar Fitzurs, has at our court been long held the first in beauty as in place. Nevertheless, it is your undoubted prerogative to confer on whom you please this crown, by the delivery of which to the lady of your choice the election of to-morrow's queen will be formal and complete. Raise your lance. The knight obeyed, and Prince John placed upon its point a coronet of green satin, having around its edge a circlet of gold, the upper edge of which was relieved by arrow-points and hearts placed interchangeably, like the strawberry leaves and balls upon a ducal crown. In the broad hint which he dropped respecting the daughter of Valdemar Fitzurs, John had more than one motive each the offspring of a mind which was a strange mixture of carelessness and presumption with low artifice and cunning. He wished to banish from the minds of the chivalry around him his own indecent and unacceptable jest respecting the Jewess Rebecca. He was desirous of conciliating Alicia's father, Valdemar, of whom he stood in awe, and who had more than once shown himself dissatisfied during the course of the day's proceedings. He had also a wish to establish himself in the good graces of the lady, for John was at least as licentious in his pleasures as profligate in his ambition. But besides, all these reasons, he was desirous to raise up against the disinherited knight, towards whom he already entertained a strong dislike, a powerful enemy in the person of Valdemar Fitzurs, who was likely, he thought, highly to resent the injury done to his daughter in case, as was not unlikely, the victor should make another choice. And so, indeed, it proved. For the disinherited knight passed the gallery, close to that of the prince in which the Lady Alicia was seated, in the full pride of triumphant beauty, and pacing forwards as slowly as he had hitherto rode swiftly around the lists, he seemed to exercise his right of examining the numerous fair faces which adorned that splendid circle. It was worth while to see the different conduct of the beauties who underwent this examination. During the time it was proceeding, some blushed, some assumed an air of pride and dignity, some looked straight forward and essayed to seem utterly unconscious of what was going on, some drew back in alarm, which was perhaps affected. Some endeavoured to forbear smiling, and there were two or three who laughed outright. There were also some who dropped their veils over their charms, 
but as the Warder manuscript says these were fair ones of ten years' standing, it may be supposed that, having had their full share of such vanities, they were willing to withdraw their claim in order to give a fair chance to the rising beauties of the age. At length the champion paused beneath the balcony in which the Lady Rowena was placed, and the expectation of the spectators was excited to the utmost. It must be owned that, if an interest displayed in his success could have bribed the disinherited knight, the part of the lists before which he paused had merited his predilection. Cedric the Saxon, overjoyed at the discomfiture of the Templar, and still more so at the miscarriage of his two malevolent neighbours, Frontbeuf and Malvoisin, had, with his body half-stretched over the balcony, accompanied the victor in each course, not with his eyes only, but with his whole heart and soul. The Lady Rowena had watched the progress of the day with equal attention, though without openly betraying the same intense interest. Even the unmoved Athelstane had shown symptoms of shaking off his apathy when calling for a huge goblet of muscadine. He quaffed it to the health of the disinherited knight. Another group, stationed under the gallery occupied by the Saxons, had shown no less interest in the fate of the day. "'Father Abraham,' said Isaac of York, when the first course was run betwixt the Templar and the disinherited knight, "'how fiercely that genteel rides! Ah, the good horse that was brought all the long way from Barbary! He takes no more care of him than if he were a wild ass's colt! And the noble armour that was worth so many zecchins to Joseph Perea, the armour of Milan, besides seventy in the hundred of prophets!' He cares for it as little as if he had found it in the highways. "'If he risks his own person and limbs, father,' said Rebecca, "'in doing such a dreadful battle, he can scarce be expected to spare his horse and armour.' "'Child,' replied Isaac, somewhat heeded, "'thou knowest not what thou speakest. His neck and limbs are his own, but his horse and armour belong to—' "'Holy Jacob! What was I about to say? Nevertheless, it is a good youth. See, Rebecca?' See, he is again about to go up to battle against the Philistine. Pray, child, pray for the safety of the good youth, and of the speedy horse and the rich armour. God of my fathers, he again exclaimed, he hath conquered, and the uncircumcised Philistine hath fallen before his lance, even as Og the king of Bashan and Sihon king of the Amorites fell before the sword of our fathers. Surely he shall take their gold and their silver, and their war-horses, and their armour of brass and of steel, for a prey and for a spoil. The same anxiety did the worthy Jew display during every course that was run, seldom failing to hazard a hasty calculation concerning the value of the horse and armour which were forfeited to the champion upon each new success. There had been, therefore, no small interest taken in the success of the disinherited knight, by those who occupied the part of the lists before which he now paused. Whether from indecision or some other motive of hesitation, the champion of the day remained stationary for more than a minute, while the eyes of the silent audience were riveted upon his motions, and then, gradually and gracefully sinking the point of his lance, he deposited the coronet which it supported at the feet of the fair Rowena. The trumpets instantly sounded, while the heralds proclaimed the Lady Rowena the Queen of Beauty and of Love for the ensuing day, menacing with suitable penalties those who should be disobedient to her authority. 
then they repeated their cry of largesse, to which Cedric, in the height of his joy, replied by an ample donative, and to which Athelstane, though less promptly, added one equally large. There was some murmuring among the damsels of Norman descent, who were as much unused to see the preference given to a Saxon beauty as the Norman nobles were to sustain defeat in the games of chivalry which they themselves had introduced. But these sounds of disaffection were drowned by the popular shout of, Long live the Lady Rowena, the chosen and lawful queen of love and beauty! To which many in the lower area added, Long live the Saxon princess! Long live the race of the immortal Alfred! However unacceptable these sounds might be to Prince John, and to those around him, he saw himself nevertheless obliged to confirm the nomination of the victor, and accordingly calling to horse, he left his throne and mounted his genet. Accompanied by his train, he again entered the lists. The prince paused a moment beneath the gallery of the Lady Alicia, to whom he paid his compliments, observing at the same time to those around him, "'By my halidom, sirs, if the knight's feats in arms have shown that he hath limbs and sinews, his choice hath no less proved that his eyes are none of the clearest.' It was on this occasion, as during his whole life, John's misfortune not perfectly to understand the characters of those whom he wished to conciliate. Valdemar Fitzurse was rather offended than pleased at the prince stating thus broadly an opinion that his daughter had been slighted. "'I know no right of chivalry,' he said, "'more precious or inalienable than that of each free knight to choose his lady-love by his own judgment. My daughter courts distinction from no one, and in her own character, and in her own sphere, will never fail to receive the full proportion of that which is her due.' Prince John replied not, but, spurring his horse as if to give vent to his vexation, he made the animal bound forward to the gallery where Rowena was seated, with the crown still at her feet. "'Assume,' he said, "'fair lady, the mark of your sovereignty, to which none vows homage more sincerely than ourself, John of Anjou, and if it please you to-day, with your noble sire and friends, to grace our banquet in the castle of Ashby, we shall learn to know the empress to whose service we devote to-morrow. Rowena remained silent, and Cedric answered for her in his native Saxon. The Lady Rowena, he said, possesses not the language in which to reply to your courtesy, or to sustain her part in your festival. I also, and the noble Athelstane of Coningsburg, speak only the language and practice, only the manners of our fathers. We therefore decline with thanks to your highness's courteous invitation to the banquet. Tomorrow the Lady Rowena will take upon her the state to which she has been called by the free election of the victor knight, confirmed by the acclamations of the people. So saying, he lifted the coronet and placed it upon Rowena's head, in token of her acceptance of the temporary authority assigned to her. "'What says he?' said Prince John, affecting not to understand the Saxon language in which, however, he was well skilled. The purport of Cedric's speech was repeated to him in French. "'It is well,' he said. "'Tomorrow we will ourself conduct this mute sovereign to her seat of dignity.' "'You, at least, Sir Knight,' he added, turning to the victor who had remained near the gallery, "'will this day share our banquet?' 
The knight, speaking for the first time, in a low and hurried voice, excused himself by pleading fatigue and the necessity of preparing for to-morrow's encounter. "'It is well,' said Prince John haughtily. "'Although unused to such refusals, we will endeavour to digest our banquet as we may, though ungraced by the most successful in arms and his elected queen of beauty.' So saying, he prepared to leave the lists with his glittering train, and his turning his steed for that purpose was the signal for the breaking up and dispersion of the spectators. Yet with the vindictive memory proper to offended pride, especially when combined with conscious want of desert, John had hardly proceeded three paces ere again, turning around, he fixed an eye of stern resentment upon the yeoman who had displeased him in the early part of the day and issued his commands to the men-at-arms who stood near. On your life, suffer not that fellow to escape. The yeoman stood the angry glance of the prince with the same unvaried steadiness which had marked his former disportment, saying, with a smile, I have no intention to leave Ashby until the day after to-morrow. I must see how Staffordshire and Leicestershire can draw their bows. The forests of Needwood and Charnwood must rear good archers. I— said Prince John to his attendants, but not in direct reply. I will see how he can draw his own, and woe betide him unless his skill should prove some apology for his insolence. It is full time, said de Bracy, that the outrequidance of these peasants should be restrained by some striking example. Valdemar Fitzurse, who probably though his patron was not taking the readiest road to popularity, shrugged up his shoulders and was silent. Prince John resumed his retreat from the lists, and the dispersion of the multitude became general. In various routes, according to the different quarters from which they came, and in various groups of various numbers, the spectators were seen retiring over the plain. By far the most numerous part streamed towards the town of Ashby, where many of the distinguished persons were lodged in the castle, and where others found accommodation in the town itself. Among these were most of the knights, who had already appeared in the tournament, or who proposed to fight there the ensuing day, and who, as they rode slowly along, talking over the events of the day, were greeted with loud shouts by the populace. The same acclamations were bestowed upon Prince John, although he was indebted for them rather to the splendor of his appearance and train than the popularity of his character. A more sincere and more general, as well as a better merited acclamation, attended the victor of the day, until, anxious to withdraw himself from popular notice, he accepted the accommodation of one of those pavilions pitched at the extremities of the lists, the use of which was courteously tendered him by the marshals of the field. On his retiring to his tent, many who had lingered in the lists to look upon and form conjectures concerning him also dispersed. The signs and sounds of a tumultuous concourse of men, lately crowded together in one place, and agitated by the same passing events, were now exchanged for the distant hum of voices, of different groups retreating in all directions, and these speedily died away in silence. No other sounds were heard, save the voices of the menials who stripped the galleries of their cushions and tapestry, 
in order to put them in safety for the night, and wrangled among themselves for the half-used bottles of wine and relics of the refreshment which had been served round to the spectators. Beyond the precincts of the lists more than one forge was erected, and these now began to glimmer through the twilight, announcing the toil of the armourers, which was to continue through the whole night, in order to repair or alter the suits of armour to be used again on the morrow. A strong guard of men-at-arms, renewed at intervals, from two hours to two hours, surrounded the lists, and kept watch during the night. End of chapter 9